Hello, and welcome to A History of Alexander the Great. Episode 1. Introduction. So, when looking at the list of all-time great figures in world history, one name that has to come up is Alexander the Great. We all know something about him. We may know he was King of Macedon. We may know he conquered from Greece all the way to India, but probably not more than that. In this series, I'm going to follow Alexander, from his youth in Macedonia to the edge of the known world and back, finding out what he did, and hopefully, why he did it. Find out his aims, and whether he completed them. What did he really think of himself? And is he as great as everyone thinks he is? In this episode, we will introduce the subject and take a look at our sources. But before we get too far in, I must warn you that we will be using a lot of Greek, Persian and Indian words in this podcast. Mostly names, but I am still quite likely to pronounce them wrong. So forgive me, I am doing my best. Alexander was born in Macedonia, 356 BC. For us to understand his life, we need to understand what the world was like at the time of his birth, specifically looking at three cultures, the Greeks, the Persians, and the Macedonians. For hundreds of years, Greece had been split up into numerous city-states, the polis. Originally, these city-states had kings, but by the 4th century BC, many of these had been removed. Some, such as Sparta, still had the kings. Other states had oligarchy, or an aristocracy, both of which are ruled by a privileged few. Others, such as the Athenians, had a democracy. Ruled by the people? What a crazy idea! It'll never catch on. The Persians came from the region Persis, which is the piece of land north of the Persian Gulf, and is in modern-day southern Iran. They exploded onto the Middle Eastern stage in the 550s BC, and under Cyrus the Great, wrestled control of the region from the Median Empire. Cyrus would take control of modern-day Iran, Iraq, Israel, Lebanon, Syria, Turkey, Afghanistan, Turkmenistan, and, of course, Uzbekistan. Charbaraz II would conquer Egypt in the 520s BC, and it would be the job of Darius the Great to conquer Greece. The Kingdom of Macedonia had been around since the 800s BC. They occupied modern-day northern Greece. Most of their war-making was against the nearby tribes of Illyria. It wasn't too important at this stage in world history. Before we continue into the Persian invasion of Greece, it is also worth covering the military tactics of the Greeks and of the Persians. Since roughly 550 BC, the Greeks used a military system known as the phalanx. A phalanx was a block of troops that formed a shield wall with long pikes jutting out of it. The troops would face the same direction, with their shields protecting the man on their left holding their pike out, and the lines behind them also holding their pikes out. It was usually about 8 ranks deep, but 16 rank and even 32 rank phalanxes have been seen. The Greeks used a 9 foot, 2.4 metre, pike called a dory. 
The goal of the phalanx would be to keep pushing forward until the enemy broke. A phalanx's biggest weakness was being outflanked, when an enemy surrounded the phalanx and was able to attack from the sides, or even from behind. A phalanx would usually use lighter troops to protect their sides to prevent this. A Persian army was made up of mostly light infantry, who would use either a spear and sword, or an axe, a bow, and a wicker shield. Cavalry would also be light and throw missiles. An elite 10,000 troops, called the Immortals, used spear, sword, and bow. Archers were also used by the Persians. The Persians had quite a basic strategy. They would have a huge army to spook the enemy into surrendering. And if that didn't work, they would weaken them with arrows and then send in wave after wave of troops until their enemy routed. This worked fine in the Middle East, but it would prove difficult when it came up against the Greek phalanx. Naval battles were also important in this war, but this was a lot simpler than land battles. Both sides had triremes, a warship powered by three banks of oars, which would ram the enemy. Now, on to the first Persian invasion of Greece. Since Cyrus the Great conquered Asia Minor in the 540s BC, the Ionian Greek cities on the coast had been troublesome. Cyrus's normal model was to pick out the leadership of the areas he conquered and leave them in control. In Judea, for example, he left the priests in control. This would not work with the Ionians. They had a leadership, the aristocracy, but it was heavily divided. The Persians settled then on having a tyrant in each of the cities. The word tyrant creates mental images of a harsh ruler who stole power illegally. There were many tyrants in the 6th and 7th centuries BC who stole power from the aristocracy, but they did so with the support of the people. But the tyrants installed by the Persians did not have the support of the people. They were stuck in limbo trying to please the people who hated, I repeat, HATED Persian rule and their Persian overlords who kept them in power, and could very easily remove them if there was any talk of rebellion. This couldn't last forever. In 499 BC, the tyrant of Miletus, Aristagoras, set out to conquer Naxos, but this was a disaster. And then, expecting to be removed as tyrant, he led Ionia into revolt. The revolt was supported by Athens, and Eretia, but it was eventually put down by the Persians in 493 BC. The Persian king Darius the Great decided to punish Athens and Eteria by invading Greece. The first move by the Persians was to turn their allies Macedon into a client kingdom. The force that did this was stopped when their fleet was destroyed. Darius launched a second push in 490 BC. This army would destroy Ateria and then turn on Athens. The Persian fleet deposited what modern scholars estimate 25,000 infantry and 1,000 cavalry in the Bay of Marathon onto a plain, while 9,000 Athenians and 1,000 Plataeans blocked their exit. After five days of stalemate, the Greeks, for reasons that no one really knows, advanced. The Greeks controlled the high ground, and had Spartan reinforcements coming. 
the Persians had only hesitated because they didn't want to attack the Greek phalanx head-on. Anyway, we only know what's happened, not why it happened. So, let's roll on. As you should remember from earlier, a phalanx could not be outflanked or it would be destroyed. Therefore, the Greeks gambled by spreading their force thinly across the plain. This meant it would be easier to break through, but it protected their flanks. To make sure they weren't outflanked, they made the centre of their line thinner and added depth to the flanks. Having seen the Greeks come off their hill, the Persians attacked. The Persians had success in the centre, and were even able to break through the line. But the deeper Greek wings meant that the Persian wings quickly routed. The Greek wings simply turned inward and crushed the centre. Herodotus reports that while the Persians lost 6,400 troops, the Athenians only lost 192, and the Plataeans only lost 11. This was a prime example of how the Persian army couldn't stand up to a strong phalanx, a fact that would haunt them again and again. The waves of Persian troops were useless against the disciplined armoured killing machine that was a phalanx. Now... I simply cannot pass this point without going off at a tangent to explain the origin of the marathon. According to legend, a Greek messenger, Philippides, ran the entire distance from the battle site to Athens, about 26 miles, without stopping, and when he arrived, he exclaimed, Nieni kikamen! We have won! He then collapsed and died. Did this actually happen? Probably not. The story first appears in Plutarch's On the Glory of Athens in the 1st century AD, and the name is given as Therpsius, Eurytius, or Eucles. In the 2nd century account of Lucian of Samosata, he gives the same story, but with the runner as Philippides. Herodotus mentions a runner called Feldipides, who ran from Athens to Spartan back, a 300-mile round trip. The runner is called Philippides in some accounts, and there is no mention of him running to Athens to give the result of the battle. Nice story, though. Following this disaster for the Persians was a ten-year interbellum, or period between wars. The Persians had to deal with a revolt in Egypt, and a new king, Xerxes I, came to power. Xerxes restarted the plans for a second Greek invasion. In Athens, the fleet was expanded, and about 70 Greek city-states formed an anti-Persian confederate alliance, including the two most powerful city-states, Athens and Sparta. This force would be tested, as in 380 BC, 200,000 Persians would invade Greece. The Greeks initially planned to stop the Persians at the Vale of Tempe in Thessaly, but after receiving news from King Alexander I of Macedon that the Persians would be able to get around the pass, they retreated. They settled on defending another pass, this one at Thermopylae, with reserve forces protecting the Isthmus at Corinth. This would prevent the Persians from reaching southern Greece. The navy, meanwhile, would protect the coast and the land from being outflanked. The Persians suffered heavy losses trying to break through the Greek line, but after a local betrayed the Greek forces by showing the Persians a way around the pass, 
the Persians were able to sneak around the back, and the Spartan king, Leonidas, realised what was happening, and sent the Greek forces back to Corinth, staying at the pass himself with about 2,000 troops, including famously 300 Spartans. They were massacred. Hearing of this defeat, the Greek navy retreated to the island of Salamis. The land forces retreated to Corinth, and Athens was abandoned. Left with only a handful of defenders, Athens would be sacked by the Persians. This is an important piece of information, as we'll see later, so remember it. After sacking Athens, Xerxes wanted to end the war quickly and a fleet of what modern historians estimate of 700 ships was to be used to defeat the Greek navy of about 370 ships, stationed at the island of Salamis. The Greek navy was able to draw the Persians into the narrow straits of Salamis, where the huge Persian numbers became more of a hindrance than a help, and the Greeks successfully captured or destroyed at least 200 ships, while losing only 40. And so 480 drew to a close at something of a stalemate. The Persians controlled most of Greece, but the Greeks quite safely controlled the Peloponnese. Unless, of course, you were an Athenian, in which case it was all bad, as you'd lost your city. The Persians tried tempting the Athenians from the coalition, but they stayed loyal. The next year saw the Greeks advance north into Boeotia, near the city of Plataea who you will recall fought at the Battle of Marathon with the Athenians. The Persian commander, Mardonius, tried to lure the Greeks out onto the plains where he would be able to use his cavalry, while the Greek commander, Pausanias, tried keeping to the hills. After several days of manoeuvring, the Greeks found themselves divided on several hills and tried joining together again. Sensing this was his best chance to attack, Mardonius ordered his men to attack, but they were unable to win against the Greek phalanxes. The 70 to 120,000 Persians had been defeated by 40,000 Greeks. After hearing of this victory, the Greek navy decided to strike while the iron was hot, and attacked the Persians at the Battle of Mycale. The Greeks deployed on land, and once again the phalanx proved superior. The second invasion of Greece was over, but the war was not. The Greeks began a counterattack that would last 30 years. They would gain control of Byzantium, Cyprus and Sestos, where Sparta would drop out of the war, but Athens and the Delian League would keep up the fight, removing the Persians from Europe even going so far as to support a rebellion in Egypt and sending troops to besiege Memphis. This would, however, be a bit too far, and the troops would be wiped out, and peace would be declared with Persia. But the Greeks were now powerful. They were unified. The world was their royster. Right? Wrong. The Greeks would squabble amongst themselves for the next hundred years, the most notable of these squabbles being the Peloponnesian War between Athens and Sparta, which saw the end of Athenian democracy. While the Greeks fought internally, a new player had arrived onto the world stage, Philip II of Macedon. Philip was born in 382 BC in Pella, Macedonia, and was the youngest son of King Amnates III. 
He was held hostage in Thebes in his youth, and became king of Macedon in 359 BC. He would revolutionise the Macedonian army. He changed the 9-foot Doripike that was used by the phalanx into an 18-foot Sarissa, a two-handed pike with a counterweight at the other end. A small shield would be strapped onto the soldier's left arm, although not many enemies could get that close for this to be needed. This style of phalanx is known as the phalangite arrangement. Philip also improved his heavy cavalry, the companion cavalry, which was arguably the best cavalry the world has ever seen. Philip unleashed his army on the world, and was able to conquer Thrace, Thessaly, and Molossia by 342 BC. Philip would defeat the Greeks in 338 BC at the Battle of Chimeramia, with help from his 16-year-old son, Alexander. Philip would be declared leader of the League of Corinth, and was told to invade Persia but was assassinated in 336 BC, age 46. That takes the story up to where we need it, and we'll go into more information on those years next time. But now, it will be worth, before we go forward, looking at our sources. There are two main sources that I will be using for this podcast, Arian and Plutarch, as well as several minor sources, like numerous documentaries I've seen across the years. Before I go too deep into Arian and Plutarch, I'll just mention that there are two other sources that I will not be using, Diodorus of Sicily and Curtius Rufus. Plutarch was born in AD 46 in Greece and died about 120 AD. He studied at the Academy in Athens and had been a priest of Apollo at Delphi and held posts in local government. He is also reported to have been the governor of the Roman province of Archaea, but this doesn't appear until the 10th century, so who knows how reliable it is. He is most famous, though, as a biographer, of which his biography on Alexander the Great is paired with Julius Caesar. Plutarch paired biographies to compare their morals, on which he judges character. He writes in a series of anecdotes of dubious reliability. He's writing to entertain, and he does a good job of this. Arion, on the other hand, born about AD 86 in northwest Turkey, and died about AD 160, is not writing to entertain. Arion was a politician and general. He'd been consul, governor of Cappadocia, archon of Athens, and probably served in Gaul and along the Danube. He gives a lot of detail about Alexander's campaigns, but it is a very boring read. He's reliable with his facts, though, and so I'm willing to overlook that. One problem for us is that most sources that we use on Alexander were written a few hundred years after his death. Plutarch and Arians were about 450 to 500 years after the fact. This means that there are many inconsistencies. I'm going to do my best and try and give you the most likely version but there are a lot of contradictions between the sources, sometimes within them. So be aware, with most of what I tell you, there are other versions of the story out there. It doesn't help that both Arian and Plutarch are biased in favour of Alexander, and Plutarch is extremely biased against the Persian barbarians. And that covers our introduction. Next week, we'll get into the actual story, looking at the early life of Alexander the Great. 
I'll finish on a technical note. Some of you may recognise me from my incomplete podcast, The History of Nationalism in Ireland. That podcast is on hold and probably won't be finished, but still, if you're interested in 19th century Ireland, go check that out. I am aware that there were some problems with our old website, so we have moved to thehistoryofpodcast.blogspot.com. You can visit us at our new Facebook page, The History of Podcast, or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash thehistoryofpod. Links to both the Facebook and Twitter pages can be found on the website. Thanks to Peter John Ross for the music, and thanks to you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the programme.